So we're joined today by Christian Kerner. Uh, Christian received his doctorate in history from the University of Bern and has held positions both there and at the University of Basel. He's also had research stays at CARI, uh, the Cyprus American Archaeological Research Institute in Nicosia, Cyprus, and has published a number of works on the Cypriot city kingdoms. So Christian, again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me very much, Andreas. Um, just to give a little context here, I took I took a little excerpt from one of your papers here because I, I really love the way you started it. And I think it gives a little, it puts things into perspective for listeners. Uh, at the end of the 4th century, all of the Cypriot kingdoms vanished during the wars of Alexander's successors, Ptolemy and Antigonus, who struggled for control of the island. Pygmalion, um, king of Kidion, was executed, Praxippus of Lapithos, Stasikis of Marion were arrested. On Ptolemy's order, the city of Marion was completely wiped out. Uh, and poignantly, the royal family of Paphos came to a really dramatic end. You know, Ptolemy ordered King Nicocles to commit suicide for secretly negotiating, negotiating with Antigonus. And with Nicocles dead, his wife Axiothea killed herself and their daughters. The king's siblings followed suit burning down the palace, and by 306 BCE, all Cypriot kingdoms had ceased to exist. So that's our, sort of our end goal. We're going to get to that part in Cypriot history. But now I want a, a backtrack. I want to start at the beginning, the 8th century BCE. And uh, I was hoping maybe you can describe the political landscape of Cyprus for us. Mm -hmm. I can try. <laughs> because uh, the problem is we do not have many sources, but um, at least we can uh, see that Cyprus in these times is um, confronted with the establishment of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And I think first one must consider the situation of uh, empires in pre-modern times. Uh, the center of Assyria lay in what is today, I think, northern Iraq, and in the 9th century BC, the Syrians started to conquer uh, large parts of the Near Eastern, even as far as Egypt. And in the 8th century, they had already subdued the Levantine coast, which today is Lebanon, Syria, Israel. And uh, at the end of the century, several Cypriot kingdoms, kings uh, submitted them, themselves to the Assyrian king, uh, Sargon II. And now is the question, how could an empire uh, so large control all these regions, especially on its periphery? And I think um, the problem is uh, that on the periphery, you could not establish garrisons in a large number. You had problems to, um, to take uh, firm control. So you had to find other ways. And I think this is, might be one of the answers um, on your question. Cyprus was always in these uh, early times on the periphery of larger kingdoms, uh, large empires, not kingdoms, excuse me. Uh, and uh, I think in this uh, time, about 800, B uh, sorry, 700 BC, when the Cypriot kings submitted themselves to the Assyrian uh, great king, they were trying to establish for themselves. Um, further commercial contacts with the Levantine coast, which already was under Assyrian control. And so by trying to establish treaties with a new power, 
they were uh, able to retain this uh, very important commercial contacts. For the Assyrian side, on the other side, it was uh, interesting to have perhaps um, access to the very important uh, copper mines from Cyprus. And it was also uh, very interesting to boast themselves being uh, kings um, as far as a Western island uh, on their periphery. Uh, that's at least what all their uh, inscriptions uh, repeat and repeat again. Um, the Assyrian kingdom reaches in the west from the island of Yadnana, which is Cyprus, to the east, um, I think, uh, until uh, until Dilmun. So it was uh, for the, uh, one could say, the Assyrian royal ideology, it was important to have uh, Cyprus as kingdom. We can also find, or we have found one stele uh, near Larnaca uh, from the King Sargon II, the Assyrian King Sargon II, which uh, boasts um, uh, Assyrian uh, rule over Cyprus, but um, there are not many Assyrian traces found in Cyprus. Uh, it does not seem to have had a garrison or a governor from Assyria, but the kingdoms... Um, were kept intact, the kings retained their control, but now were paying tribute to the Assyrians, uh, were probably delivering ships uh, in uh, times of war, but otherwise were left completely uh, free in uh, deciding what to do, as long as uh, they, are, they came not into conflict with the Assyrian policies. So how many city kingdoms do we have in Cyprus at this time? Mm -hmm. In the in the first Assyrian text, there are mentioned seven kings, but the seven uh, the number seven is all a little bit um, suspicious. Since and sorry, I just want to confirm this. Um, I believe you're referring to the display inscription text. Yeah and, um, yeah, yeah. and this text is the first such text that refers to the city kingdoms by name, right? Yeah. No, not by name, okay. but uh, there, there's also only uh, the mentioning of seven kings. Not, not the, right. the names, no names, no names of the kingdoms either. So we do not know which kings uh, or which kingdoms these were. And uh, perhaps uh, seven is also the number. Um, I think the text says uh, Cyprus lies seven uh, days uh, to the west. So number seven is a little bit suspicious. Um, we have later two inscriptions, one from uh, Esarhaddon and the second Ashurbanipal, which mention ten kingdoms, and there we have the names of the kings and of the kingdoms. So probably in the uh, 7th century BC there were about ten kingdoms on Cyprus, at least ten kingdoms. Perhaps there were some kingdoms not under Assyrian control, but this seems to me rather uh, improbable. Um, I think uh, the control of the Assyrians must have uh, been uh, over the whole island. And some of those kingdoms, um, we can reasonably conclude from the, the inscriptions. I mean, the, the, the similarities in the names, you know, we have King uh, Atmesu, King of Tamesu, we can associate that with Tamasos. Mm -hmm. Ituandar, uh, King of Papa, it says, we, again, that makes sense, that would be for Bafos. Uh, and these kings, these kingdoms, they're, they're about 10 that they mention, but at any given time, uh, this isn't a fixed number. Are they static? Like, do they always stay the same or are they changing? What sort of, what sort of factors influence their, 
their ability to to maintain their hegemony in in Cyprus. Uh, some of these kingdoms uh, later vanish, uh, especially the kingdoms in the center of the island. Uh, for example, Tamesu or Tamasos or Lidir, which is Ledra, today Nicosia. Uh, and other kingdoms uh, appear, which are not mentioned in the two Assyrian lists, especially Kition. Perhaps one of the names on the Assyrian lists, Karti Hadashti, which means new city or new town, could be Kition, but that's not definitely sure. So um, we could say that, uh, yes, there is some continuity. Uh, several of the kingdoms reappear until the uh, late 4th century, but uh, some kingdoms also vanish, and it seems that the kingdoms on the, which had harbors, which were, which were lying um, uh, at the coast and were able to establish the commercial contacts with outside the uh, island, um, were rather uh, successful in keeping their con uh, their independence or no not independence sorry rather were just um, keeping their existence and other were obviously um, annexed by by the coast king coastal kingdoms. Yeah, I find that interesting that this is um, these these kingdoms like uh, Ivalion and Tamasos that you mentioned. Often these kingdoms are absorbed by stronger ones within Cyprus. So we know that I believe Adalion and Tamasos uh, was was absorbed by Kirian. And uh, I find that interesting that Cyprus is is, is uh, an island that's really, it's a very precarious balance between these city kingdoms. And this balance um, is also the main factor until the late 4th century BC. You have started uh, with the end of the kingdoms uh, until then we have also always this balance of about probably between seven and ten maybe sometimes 12 kingdoms which um, sometimes collaborate sometimes fight each other uh, but seem to have uh, been in a unstable um, form of um, balance now you mentioned in, I mean, one of your papers, this one I, I really enjoyed reading because it, it's a beautiful summary of this period, but your focus is on suzerainty, uh, which is not a, not a common word that people mm-hmm. come across. Mm-hmm. It's very clear when reading it, uh, and it's very easy to understand. So I was hoping you can explain to us what suzerainty is and why this was advantageous to both Cypriot kingdoms and the Near Eastern ones. I have just looked up uh, for a definition of suzerainty, uh, which I found in a handbook by Kugan, which is very um, helpful. He says, suzerainty is a binding agreement between a king or suzerain and a lesser king, the suzerain's vassal, end of quote. I think this help might help explain how a large empire like the Assyrian or later the Persian empires were able to take control on their periphery. They left the local traditions, the local governments, uh, mainly untouched as long as these petty kings, uh, as uh, we might call them, were um, accepting the the, uh, uh, suzerainty of the larger king. Therefore, the Persian king or the Assyrian king are also often called king of kings, because they're king over smaller or petty kings. Um, concept has 
probably was first established by treaties. We have several treaties of Assyrian rulers with uh, petty kings, or I think earlier by also Hittite rulers. And by the way, also the covenant in the Bible is um, modeled on such a, a treaty or a suzerainty treaty. Unfortunately, we do not have any treaties concerning Cypriot petty kings with uh, Assyrian rulers, but nevertheless, they must have existed, I think. And in these treaties, they were obviously um, regulated all uh, the uh, duties of the petty kings, like supplying ships or uh, the, the tributes. And uh, perhaps in the beginning, the treaties also had to be re-established uh, once one of the kings, uh, one of the partners of the treaty had died. Um, the um importance for the of these treaties for the Assyrian side was that they were able so to um have a very easy control over the periphery and on the other side the um um importance for the Cypriot side or for the periphery uh, be it in Cyprus be it in other parts of the empire was that the petty kings were able to establish um firm contacts and uh retain the, the important um, economic contacts with the rest of the empire. So it was a win-win situation for both sides, I think. And uh, this might also help to explain why sometimes the relationship could get into trouble uh, once one of the petty kings did something that was um, not in the... Um, which came into conflict with the policy of the a uh, larger empire of the great king. Uh, sometimes a petty king could try to um, to um, expand his boundaries um, and try to ex uh, to follow his own policy, uh, and then he had to be restrained by the by the greater king. Which was uh, something that I mean, we're not going to talk about it just yet, but <laughs> was. Famously, famously done by Evagoras of yeah, Salamis, exactly. um, both within Cyprus and outside of Cyprus. Um, I know he goes and attacks the Levantine co coast, according to the sources, which is very impressive for these, you know, small petty kingdoms with very little political currency in the uh, in the fourth century. Really fascinating time period. Now, just to be clear, we have. Suzerainty is uh, Cyprus is on the periphery, so it's it's far on the outside uh, from the center of of Assyrian power, and uh, Cyprus is able to thrive in this agreement because a they have access to markets afforded to them by the extensive Assyrian Empire uh, in exchange for relative autonomy, relative freedom. I know they. They strike their own coins, for example. They have reasonable, pol uh, reasonable foreign policy, at least within Cyprus. Uh, and they, apart from sending ships and perhaps troops and definitely copper, there's no worry about foreign occupation. Uh, and like you said, apart from the steely that was found, and you said in Larnaca, there's not really much uh, evidence that we have of a Syrian occupation of any sort. Uh, this is... This is really, Cyprus truly is on the periphery, figuratively and literally. Yeah, exactly. 
And uh, this remains for the whole time until the Persian invasion in the late 6th century. In the beginning still of the Persian time, still Cyprus is on the periphery. But um, at least with the Vagoras, I think we will speak about them later, uh, we can see a certain changement of the center-periphery situation. But for the 8th, 7th, 6th centuries, also 5th centuries, I would say that Cyprus remains on the periphery uh, seen from the center of the uh, New Eastern Empires. So um, if we fast forward then to the um, Persian Empire, um, Cyprus pops up during the Ionian Revolt, uh, the Ionian Revolt rather. Well, okay, let's let's start from the beginning. So the this rebellion, it proliferates piecemeal throughout Asia Minor's uh, Ionian colonies, quickly spreading across the Mediterranean and eventually taking root in Cyprus, uh, pitting a coalition of Ionian and Cypriot city kingdoms against the vast Achaemenids. And a cursory glance into the origins of the revolt, it suggests that it was a manifestation of underlying ethnic and national conflict. Um, and if it's not explicit, it's implied. I know I've read a lot of books where it, 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 there's this, you're, we're supposed to see this as a, as a conflict between the Greek elements in Cyprus and the Persian slash Phoenician elements. And this, again, and this is very, uh, it's, it's not the right term. It's a very unusual term to apply to this. But, you know, it's been seen as a national revolt. And this is a common narrative. But this is problematic. Um, now, why would you call it problematic? I think first one has to consider the situation on the island um, concerning the population. You have, as you have said, a lot of Greeks, Greek-speaking people, I'd rather say. You have a lot of Phoenician-speaking people. Perhaps you also have a third group, which we might call indigenous. Um, perhaps these are um, is a population already there before the um, Greek and Phoenician times. And uh, as you have said, sometimes you still can read that the Phoenicians on Cyprus were the supporters of Persia, while the Greeks resisted in a national uprising. I do not think that this is a very common view anymore in uh, scientific publications, but it still remains in um, the in publications for a larger audience. I think the first problem is the term nation. Nations are a very modern feature. I think Eric Sopsbaum has already shown this uh, many years ago, and um, there existed no Greek or Roman nation in antiquity. Of course, there was a Greek culture with certain common features. But this should not be confused with the modern concept of Greek nation. That is the problem of the identity. We do not know whether these groups in Cyprus identified themselves as Greeks as opposed to Phoenicians or as Greeks opposed to indigenous Cypriots or as Greek Cypriots opposed to Phoenician Cypriots or simply as Salaminians opposed to Kittians. So I think um, the Identity question is just not to be solved uh, as far as our written sources go. Then we have a second problem. There's only one written source providing a report of the Cypriot revolt, and this is Herodotus. And he never speaks of Greeks and Phoenicians in this uh, text. He mentions a conflict inside the ruling dynasty of Salamis, a Greek dynasty, at least uh, as far as the names go. 
there is one Onesilos. He dethrones his brother Gorgas and then joins the Ionian Revolt, whichever this is the revolt uh, that had just broken out in Asia Minor against Persian rule. And sorry, just I'm going to jump in here for a quick second. Yeah. And, and this is where I think people would assume that this is some sort of nationalist, yeah. uh, nationalistic yeah. drive, you know, where he sees himself as a, that this is someone who says, I'm Greek and I'm going to join the Ionians in revolt against my Persian overlords. Yeah, uh, the interesting thing is that his brother Gorgas, also Greek, goes to the Persians, to uh, King Darius, and seeks for help. So we have not only a Greek-Greek conflict, but we have a conflict inside a ruling dynasty, which is Greek, and one of the uh, brothers calls the Ionians for help, and the other calls the Persians for help. So that's also already one of the problems where you see this cannot be something like a Greek national revolt. Then Herodotus uh, continues that um, all kingdoms except for Amatus support Onesilos. If this is correct, then almost all Cypriots, be they Greeks, be they Phoenicians, revolted against Persia. Amatus was ruled by a Greek dynasty, as far as we can tell from the names, and might have had a mixed Greek uh, indigenous population. So the only supporters of the Persian king were Greek kings with a perhaps mixed population. It is also interesting that Herodotus never mentions Kition, which was the most important Cypriot kingdom ruled by Phoenicians. If his claim is correct that all kingdoms, except for Amatus, joined the revolt, then the Phoenicians of Kition would also um, not have been on Persia's side. To make things a bit more complicated, we do not know whether Kition was already an independent kingdom by 498 BC when the revolt broke out. In short, whatever the reasons for the revolt, they should not be explained by any national identity. But obviously, there seems to have been a large discontent with Persian rule if almost all kingdoms joined the revolt. And um, I uh, could imagine that Onesilus was trying to play um, an anti-Persian card. Uh, perhaps the taxes were too high, which might be one of the uh, uh, topics of, um, of conflict. But nevertheless, um, we do not see in, in Herodotus anything of a Greek revolt against in Cyprus against the Persians, which is uh, interesting because Herodotus is very interested in um, exactly these questions. Um, is there a Greek-Persian uh, conflict uh, at all? Not in Cyprus, but uh, in the Persian Wars and so on. So I think he might have... Um, um, under, uh, underlined this point if he had found something in Cyprus which would have supported his uh, his his uh, investigation concerning the Persian Wars. So I think one should not speak about a national revolt but about a Cypriot revolt uh, against Persia which shows that there must have been uh, discontentment with Persian rule at least. Absolutely and uh, that was actually my, my next question. I mean um he 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 persuades as far as Herodotus uh, goes. He persuades all the city kingdoms except for Amathus to join in the revolt. So, do we have any guesses as to why and how he was able to persuade um, mm -hmm. all the other city kingdoms to join? That's one of the most debated uh, topics in Cypriot history, I think. Uh, Perhaps uh, Darius had uh, done something with the taxes. Uh, in Persia, there was a, um, 
Changement of government, uh, Cambises, Cambises, I think one says in English, Darius might have made a new administration for the Persian Empire. And it might have been that the taxes might have been higher now. But that's only a suggestion or a a hypothesis, I'd I'd say. Um, No, uh, we do not have any um, definite clues why the Cypriots revolted, but um, at least there must have been a large discontentment. Afterwards, remained loyal until uh, mid uh, uh, 4th century shows that later the problems seem not to have been so so high. So I don't know. For for Onesilus, um, obviously we know from the sources his luck does run run out. King Stasinor of Kurian defects to the Persians. Salaminian war chariots during the battle they desert and they um, the the Salaminian forces are routed and Onesilus is slain. One of the most interesting stories I find is what happens to Onesilus's corpse. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to read this um, this excerpt from Herodotus, and he says, "The Amethusians, because Onesilus uh, had laid siege to their town." cut the head off his corpse and took it with them to Amathus, where it was set up over the gates. Here it hung until it became hollow, whereupon a swarm of bees took possession of it and filled it with a honeycomb. On seeing this, the Amethusians consulted the oracle and were commanded to take down the head and bury it, and thenceforth um, to regard Onesilus as a hero and offer sacrifices to him year by year. Uh, Really interesting uh, event, and we can see that comes to... A horrible end. Everything is back as is. What would you say? Do you do you think the city kingdoms they saw the writings on the wall? So we, you know, as we say, and uh, they said, "Uh oh, you know, things are not looking good." Let's let's you know, w- hey, we're friends again. It's everything's all right. You know, yeah. is that is that what happened? Is that yeah. what we can reasonably I assume? Think so. I think so. It's it's something uh, which which might lay uh, lie in in this uh, concept of suzerainty. You can try, uh, if you are now able to shake off um, your master's uh, yoke, and if you do not succeed, you try to um, to make peace as fast as you can. And uh, so I think um, Stasanor of Kurion or uh, the Salaminian, Salaminian chariots, which might have been the, the aristocrats of Salamis, um, realized that now their future... Um, was safer when uh, reconciling with a Persian great king. And uh, it is interesting that we do not hear of any uh, severe measures uh, taken by the Persian great king after the revolt. Uh, So it looks as if um, uh, it was really back to normal. Gorgas uh, becomes reinstated as king of um, Salamis and... Um, later, he is found again at Herodotus uh, when the Persians attack um, Athens. So he seems to have not only deliver, uh, delivered supplied ships, but also to have commanded one of the ships, if I remember correctly. So um, the uh, Cypriot petty kings uh, now are uh, loyal supporters again of Persia. So if we fast forward... Um... A little bit here uh so things are great everything's back in order and then we come across a very interesting uh historical figure evagoras uh of salamis evagoras is king uh, in salamis and 
he is uh, he traces his descent, his his familial descent to the Tukrids. I, I suppose the Iliad, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. I mean, this is where they claim their their descendants from, and he we know a lot of him from Isocrates, who mm-hmm. celebrates him as a true Philhellene. So before we get into a lot of his achievements and his exploits, Isocrates, as I said, sees him as a, a, um, a Philhellene. Supposedly, there's a lot of adoption of Greek mores. To what extent has this been overstated, or has it been overstated? Is is Evagoras really, you know, uh, this true Philhellene, as um, as Isocrates goes tells us? I think to understand Isocrates' statements, one has to consider the nature of these texts. Uh, he writes for a Greek, mainly for an Athenian public, and on one hand, he's interested in questions concerning ideal forms of government, good forms of kingship. And on the other hand, he follows or might have followed an uh, agenda of uniting Greek polis against Persia. And so he might project all these topics on the Persian, on the person of Evagoras, uh, who was fighting at this time the Cypriot war against Persia, who obviously uh, stylished himself as a Greek king in uh, Cyprus and uh, therefore was an ideal um, person for. Um, Isocrates' statements. Indeed, Evagoras had very good relations to Athens. He even became an Athenian citizen. But his politics, if you take a closer look, are uh, obviously dictated by Salaminian interests and not by Greek interests. Uh, He's not trying to fight a Greek war um, for Greece against Persia, but he's trying to expand his Salaminian territory, his uh, power as king of Salamis, He tries not to be a petty king anymore, one could uh, um, think, one might think, but to be um, a king with a larger uh, sphere of influence. Um, uh, The Cypriot celebrity does not vanish. Uh, It only vanishes uh, after the end of the Cypriot kingdoms. Therefore, yes, it might be an uh, effort on the side of uh, Evagoras to... to, mm, modernize his kingdom or to to uh, confirm his good relationships with uh, Greece. But nevertheless, he remains a Salaminian um, uh, king, I think. Yeah, and, and we do know that um, at the outbreak of the Corinthian War between Athens and Sparta, uh, Evagoras allies himself with the Persian-backed Athenian coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can see that... And I, I I don't believe Isocrates mentions this. I mean, for someone who's supposed to be mm-hmm. such a great Greek, let's say, um, that's kind of omitted. And yeah, you, you did mention he's commemorated. Uh, and they, I, I believe they erect a statue in Athens of it in his yeah, honor, in yeah. addition to his um, mm-hmm. to his citizenship. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's got a really great story, um, mm-hmm. you know, re- real or not. I mean, uh, it says that... Um, He's exiled from his childhood home in Salamis. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, we have a Phoenician usurper, Abdomen of Tyre. He uh, uh, seizes the Salamanian throne. And according to Isocrates, he reduces the city to barbarism, you know, bringing the whole island to subservience to the great mm-hmm. king. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, that, there's that thing, you know, brings the island to subservience to the great king. But at the same time, 
when Evagoras is older, he's if his policies align with the great king as they did in the Corinthian War, uh, you know, we're not batting an eye at that. That is very interesting. When Evagoras comes to the throne, he seizes the throne by power, um, by force, sorry, not by power, by force, and um, um, dethrones the unknown uh, Phoenician usurper that's also already the successor of the Abdemon you mentioned. Uh, he dethrones this usurper, which, according to Diodorus, is a friend, has been friend with a Persian king. So um, one might have expected that Persia now intervenes, uh, but the Persian great king accepts that Evagoras is now the king of Salamis, and uh, for the next 20 years we do not uh, hear of any conflicts between Evagoras and the Persian great king. But uh, as you have said, uh, right, quite the opposite, uh, that um, uh, Evagoras is in very good terms with the Persian great king. And I think this might have been the reason why Evagoras uh, thought he might uh, be allowed to expand his power in Cyprus because for 20 years he had been in good terms with the Persian great king. And then he might have been quite surprised uh, by the reaction of Persia uh, when once he started this, this um, um expansion yeah so that expansion um you know it, he he lays he lays siege to other city kingdoms and as you said you know we can assume that he thought hey if i look how loyal i am uh i participate in the corinthian war i'm going to do what i want is this i mean eventually he even he again he attacks uh, the levantine coast as well so this is as far as i'm aware this is the first time we have a Cypriot king, you know, stepping out and mm -hmm. attacking mm -hmm. places mm -hmm. outside of Cyprus. Um, now, is this a terrible miscalculation, or or is this like a uh, a very gutsy move? Is this is this admirable um, from you know a political uh, militaristic standpoint, or is it has he terribly miscalculated? I think it's um, already the second phase uh, of the Cypriot war, if you might call it like that. In the first phase, he tries to uh, subdue the whole island, according to the sources, uh, be that as it may be. Uh, at least he's expanding his power in Cyprus. And then uh, three city kingdoms, Kition, Amatus, and Soloi, uh, apply to the Persian great king for help. And then Evagoras finds himself in a difficult situation, and it is now that he tries to... Um, to take the war uh, to different regions like the Levantine coast, like the coast of uh, Asia Minor. He establishes contacts with uh, Egypt, which is uh, already um, independent from Persia. Uh, perhaps he even had contacts with an Arabian uh, ruler. We do not know uh, exactly. Perhaps it's also a mistake in this source. But at least we can see that now he's trying to take the conflict into a broader scope. And so this might have been a very bold and uh, brave move uh, to try to win the war. This is a big concern for Persia because uh, he's really destabilizing Cyprus. At this point, is this, a, is this something that we can assume the Persian king says, this is not good, we need to step in, we need to stop this because... Even though Cyprus was on the periphery, this is not good for business. Is this, is this uh, to use a modern term, is this how we can uh, perceive this? I think 
at the time the three city kingdoms called the Persian king for help. Uh, the Persian king does not have many options. He has to uh, help them because otherwise he would um, undermine his own uh, power and credibility. Uh, so we do not know whether uh, the Persian great king really saw Evagoras' policy as a problem, but once three kingdoms, not only one, called for help, he had to do something. And when we take a closer look at the Cypriot War, as far as we can see, uh, the Persian side is far from being uh, clear in their politics. It's very funny. The first uh, satrap who is dispatched to fight Evagoras is being bribed by Evagoras and then uh, joins forces with Evagoras. Uh, right, so, right. Uh, so we can see the Persian side uh, uh, does not have a very consequent and uh, united um, um, way policy. of fighting, yeah, yeah, policy of uh, fighting this war at the beginning and it's becoming very complicated for them. Uh, and it's very interesting that Evagoras, in the end, even after his defeat, is able to um, to keep his his position. Uh, but we can talk about that a little bit later. So I think Persia is something in a kind of uh, I would not say crisis, but at least uh, there is not a very firm and um, consequent reaction. So what's unique about his um, his rule? So I mean, if we go back to Isocrates, mm -hmm. where we get we mentioned earlier that he's celebrated as a Philhellene, perhaps mm -hmm. more a Phil-Athenian, if, mm -hmm. if anything, mm -hmm. if we can use yeah. that term. Why, uh, why does he celebrate him? What is it so unique about his rule? Uh, it's a time when uh, generally the, there's a certain fascination among intellectuals for, um, for splendid rulers like Dionysius of Syracuse or Evagoras. Uh, um, and so I think this might be might be understood in the context of the intellectual discussions in Athens among philosophers about um, ideal rulers. I also think that Evagoras is a very um, impressive personality. Uh, it's uh, the first petty king and also the last petty king who was able to make such a, a bold uh, foreign policy, who is obviously... Um, able to establish his kingdom uh, as the um, most powerful kingdom not only in Cyprus but uh, from in the in the scope of petty kingdoms it's one of the most uh, influential petty kingdoms in these uh, early decades of the fourth century so I think um, this is a person one had to uh, look at if you were interested in what was going on in the Eastern Mediterranean so I'm not so surprised that Isocrates with a certain um, um, uh, sympathy for um, kingship, uh, has had a, to had a look um, at Evagoras. By the way, his texts um, are written after Evagoras' death, so um, there might also have been personal relationships between Isocrates and uh, the successors of Evagoras, which might also explain why Isocrates. Um, wrote such a great deal about um, Evagoras. Yeah, and we also have to keep in mind that um, his writing is, is an encomium, which is a celebration. It, it, these were texts that were uh, written usually in celebration of someone who's passed. And that I, I think we can 
be cautious of that this might skew the way uh, Evagoras is presented. Of I course. Mean, it's of very course. celebratory, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, of course. And uh, the other two uh, speeches by uh, Socrates, uh, there's three uh, separate speeches. One is a um, fictional um, uh, speech by the uh, successor of Evagoras to his people, how he explains his... Uh, his way of his kingship. So I think this uh, one has to read this really as, as rather um, texts trying to establish a certain uh, perspective on kingship. You know, for Cyprus, um, having such little political and military capital, um, what he achieved, uh, what he did was very impressive. I, you think about the fact that he was able to leverages Egyptian support while he's um, raising Phoenicia and you mentioned Southern Asia Minor, Cilicia, he causes them to revolt from the king. Even then when the Persian fleet arrives to Cyprus and he's outnumbered, he manages to take advantage of a surprise, a surprise attack. He has a, a strategy of harrying of their supply lines. Ultimately, he's, he's defeated. Ultimately, he's defeated. But even then, you know, you mentioned Artaxerxes' general uh, who forces Cyprus to reinstitute the tribute. Evagoras rejects it. He rejects the, tra- the ratification of the treaty. And it's, again, I- I'm, I'm thinking to myself, who, do- who does this guy think he is? <laughs> like, you know, how, how can he say, um, not going to do that? And for some reason, I mean, it's, it's, it gets very, very, very sticky, you know, especially with all these names. But Isocrates eventually says that uh, Artaxerxes agreed to to saying as king to king, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. slave to master. And I just I, I don't understand how is this how is he able to leverage his position mm-hmm. even in, in defeat? Uh, I think that's Diodorus, not Isocrates, who um, has this uh, story. Yeah, um, I think since Evagoras in the end um, succeeds, he must have uh, obviously. Um, have a very um, correct, um, I don't know the, the English word, um, Einschätzung. He must have seen what his possibilities were and he must have uh, took the opportunity and he was successful. Therefore, the Persian side obviously uh, was trying to make peace um, as fast as possible. Perhaps because there were other uh, conflicts, we know that Artaxerxes was fighting in uh, the northern parts of his empire, and um, obviously, Evagoras also was able to to uh, see that there were conflicts inside the Persian uh, army um, um, at the, between the generals, and um, he must have taken his opportunity. And I think this shows that he was a very clever politician. And I, I think, you know, when we're looking back at it, some of the things that he achieved for Cypriot uh, king is is very savvy and very clever, that's for sure. But we also, we, we have to remember and put everything into context when we're thinking of these events as being this um, Greek rebellion. You know, we, we always remember that this is Evagoras campaigned against other Philhellenic city-states mm-hmm. on Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, these mm-hmm. city kingdoms, they're always vying for their own independence. Mm-hmm. They're hardly driven. And again, this is this is an incorrect term to use. They're not driven by nationalistic or pa- mm-hmm. patriotic Hellenic sentiment, by, but by self-preservation. That's mm-hmm. their, their number one goal. 
I think also that, that Evagoras shows that Cyprus is now becoming more and more a center of interest. He is um, uh, establishing contacts with all sorts of people. We have uh, talked about Egypt and so on, but he's also to um, uh, able to to make contact with the satraps and uh, uh, pulling them on his side or bribing them or uh, conspiring against uh, other satraps. So we see one who is very at the center of the of the action, and one has also uh, the um, impression that it is Evagoras who is um, who is the protagonist of these things. And I don't think that this is a problem of the source, since our main source for these events is Diodorus, who writes a universal history about 200, uh, 300 years la later, and is not very interested in Cypriot uh, topics. So. If this is the version that uh, Diodorus delivers, I think um, it might be correct to to think that that Evagoras really is the one who is pulling the strings. Now, uh, for all his achievements, Evagoras has a very ignominious uh, mm -hmm. end. <laughs> yeah, you could say so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a very very peculiar end, um, and I think even the sources are a little confused. Uh, do you mind telling us about how uh, he meets his demise? The problem is really that the sources are very confused. But it seems that there was uh, some kind of uh, um, of uh, affair, sexual affair inside the, the ruling house uh, that he and his son were sleeping with the same woman and that they somehow managed to um, violating her honor and uh, the honor of her father or something like that, but we do right. not know. But at least uh, he ends in a very, very strange um, uh, and rather, as you said, ignominious um, <laughs> way. He might have been killed then by, uh, by the father of the one uh, woman he had sex with or something like that. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the one of uh, the other um, historians, I think Theopompus, he says that it was a eunuch who was secretly mm -hmm. arranging these liaisons with his master's yeah. daughter for both king and his son, like you mentioned. And then the same eunuch arranged the murder. But Ar Aristotle says something different. He says that uh, that the son of Evagoras had taken a eunuch's wife. And then Diodorus uh, claims that Nicocles, the eunuch, assassinated the king and possessed himself of the royal power over the Salaminians, which is interesting because Evagoras' son, his name is Nicocles, which probably mm -hmm. is irrelevant. But mm -hmm. it's an it's definitely an interesting story. But this is where we come um, sort of full circle here. I know uh, there is another revolt that happens later on. But if we come back to where we started the recording, well, we have the war of the successors and Alexander. Well, we know that again, they see the writing on the wall during Alexander's campaigns and they clearly, they ally themselves. I know that um, uh, some of the Cypriot kingdoms are a part of the uh, Alexander's attack on uh, the Levantine coast. Most famously, I believe it was the siege of Tyre. We know that they shift, they pivot again. Now they ally themselves with Alexander, but now uh, Alexander has died and we have the war of his successors. Uh, this was brutal series of, of conflicts takes us from, from the first, the second, third and fourth. The Diadoc Wars. And um, 
now uh if we if we go back to what you you talked about the the mm. periphery and suzerainty uh mm. there's a drastic change there's a shift by the end of the of these conflicts and what exactly happens the problem is that um what was new about this situation i think is that now several contestants were trying to control cyprus especially ptolemy on the one side and antigonus and his son demetrius on the other side and once um, this conflict started on Cyprus, Cyprus was no longer on the periphery, but had become one of the centers of this conflict. When you and can we look- say sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Can we say that that's that's a literal in the literal sense, uh, Cyprus is no longer on the periphery. We're talking yeah. geographically. Cyprus yeah. is now uh, located in the center. Is that how we can perceive this? Yes, yes. Most of the Didoc Wars uh, take place in the East Mediterranean, in Asia Minor, in Greece. Um, in uh, Palestine, but not on the uh, not in the uh, mainland of the uh, ancient Alexander Empire, not in Babylon. It's rather in the East Mediterranean. So Cyprus is literally in the center of the conflict. Now, uh, there's not just one great empire, right? There's there's several several powers competing for hegemony, as you actually write here. The, the there's a mistake, I suppose, that happens because. Uh, these different uh, kings, they try allying themselves with um, not not Ptolemy, but mm-hmm. uh, Antigonus. Mm-hmm. What, what happens there? Uh, what happens that's so disastrous for Nicocles? Um The problem is that um, once one of the kings allies himself with uh, Ptolemy or Antigonus, uh, the other uh, kings are now... No, sorry, I have to start again. Um, I think the problem is uh, that Nicocreon of Salamis was the main ally of Ptolemy. And on the other side, Nicocles of Paphos started negotiating secretly with Antigonus, probably in order to to see whether he can uh, secure his position. Mm -hmm. And once Ptolemy hears of these secret negotiations, uh, he has uh, to abolish uh, the kingdom of Paphos, because uh, what happens here can always happen again, that uh, one of the uh, petty kings can try to ally himself with the uh, um, other contestant in the, in the war of the successors. So um, in the end, it was clear, even if Antigonus had won this uh, conflict, there would have been um, an abolishment of all the petty kingdoms, because now the situation where um, just as in Persian times, the existence of these kingdoms had secured the control of the island uh, for the Persian king, because he could have uh, he could apply a policy of uh, divide and separate, divide et impera. Um, this was not uh, possible anymore, since there were now two um, outside contestants, and uh, every Cypriot petty king could ally himself with a uh, with the opponent of of one of the two uh, outsiders so i think um, i made it a little bit complicated sorry <laughs> no no it no it actually makes makes a lot of sense but okay. um we we know that that ptolemy ultimately you know he wins he he cyprus cyprus uh, is absorbed into his um portion of uh, alexander's conquests so why now um uh, why now abandon the the concept of suzerainty? 
um, I suppose mm-hmm. is my next question. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed to work for for the Assyrians. It worked for the Persians. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I know. I know now the center periphery model is different. Can he not still apply the divide and conquer? Um, uh, no, I do not think so because. Uh, once you have established the successors' empires, you have the Seleucid Empire in uh, the Levantine coast and in uh, Syria, and you have the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt. Both are fighting uh, for uh, the rule over uh, Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, these regions, and um, therefore the conflicts are taking place very close to Cyprus. And Cyprus is important, is of strategic importance for um, for both sides. So um, it is not possible anymore to let there uh, these ten or twelve kingdoms, whatever uh, the number was, because um, uh, there's always the the danger that once Ptolemy is in control of most of the island, that uh, one of the kings tries to to get uh, into contact with uh, the Seleucids since he thinks maybe he might have better terms. And then you have a conflict again in Cyprus. So in the perspective of Ptolemy, or if it had been uh, one of the Seleucids, uh, Seleucos, you had to get control over the whole island. Now, this might be outside of um, your expertise here, but what sort of, um, and I mean, uh, this is where maybe the archaeology comes into play. What sort of changes are we seeing with this now, this, this the dawn of the Hellenistic era, what sort of changes are we seeing on Cyprus uh, now that they're in, they're firmly established in the um, in the Ptolemaic sphere? This is a very interesting topic. Uh, it has been uh, also the topic of many researches, especially by Jorios Pampantoniu, who has written a wonderful book about this. Um, period from the late kingdoms, uh, petty kingdoms to uh, Ptolemaic times. Um, at least you could say that Cyprus becomes uh, a little a bit more Greek. Uh, the syllabary, the Cypriot syllabary, this uh, script, which was used for uh, centuries, now um, very seldom. It's now uh, mainly yeah. Greek alphabet inscriptions. Obviously, uh, the language becomes uh, the Greek koine, the, the, which is mainly the Attic Greek. So um, uh, in this part, you can see the, that uh, the island becomes more and more Greek, at least. The Phoenician inscriptions do not disappear completely, but also uh, there are um, less Phoenician inscriptions than before. Uh, sometimes there are bilingual inscriptions, uh, Greek and Phoenician. So obviously it was not forbidden to speak Phoenician, not at all, but um, there seems to have been something like a um, certain cultural um, mainstream and Cyprus becomes part of this mainstream. In the religious, uh, um, in the religions, we can see a lot of um, continuity uh, when we look back, uh, which is quite normal since religion is also uh, is always very um, strong in the tradition. But we also see new uh, types of cults like uh, Sarapis or uh, also uh, the ruler cult from uh, from Alexandria. So uh, there are many new um, new influences also uh, to be seen in this in this uh, area 
but it's a very interesting topic which uh, if you are interested you might take a look at uh, Papantonio's interesting um, work right and and you know that would make sense uh, greek obviously becomes a lingua franca of the entire mediterranean at that time and it, it would make sense that greek becomes very dominant and phoenician obviously disappears uh, eventually uh, so you said that it did they did speak uh, a little bit but eventually it would disappear yeah, christian i um really appreciate your time this was uh i think a very elucidating conversation i really enjoyed it so if you uh, want to do this again with another topic on cyprus uh, just ask uh, i think it's very interesting and i really enjoyed it to uh, to speak in this also very um relaxed manner uh, concerning these very interesting topics so do not hesitate to contact me again if you want eh? so, all right christian thank you very much <laughs>